some of you may remember we actually did a post-movie stream discussion on this very film when Third and I went to see it uh, in the theaters. Like I said, we're getting pretty recent at this point. This is just a couple years ago now. And um, I wasn't impressed with it. But I had the same reaction to Incredibles 2, and my opinion of Incredibles 2 went up and down after, you know, analysis mode. So, you know, I was kind of curious how my reaction would be on this film as well. I've always liked the idea of urban fantasy. When I was younger, I, I, I say when I was younger, it's still a character I haven't done anything with. I designed a character who was just a dude in like a, you know, button-down shirt and jeans, who was just, you know, regular-looking dude, wandering around in sneakers, and he was also a mage. And that was that was the shtick, and just the idea of that always appealed to me. Modern magery, right? Now, I know, there's actually a lot of stuff that I've done that over the years, but, I don't know, something about that just mundane, magical mix has always been interesting, so I was kind of on board the moment I saw this film, the very first trailer for this film, so, you know, woo! Um, this film cost about $200 million-ish to make, and made $142 million. Now, <laughs> if you're listening, that's probably a big oof moment. Remember, even Good Dinosaur actually lost money for complicated reasons I discussed back then. But other than that, every other Pixar film has made its money back. It could be debated whether this film made its money back or not, because it's hard to track the kind of sales that it made, because, well, this film came out in March of 2020. Now, on the off chance that you don't know that and you happen to be watching this historically, here in the States, that was when the lockdowns really started happening, and a lot of the theaters started shutting down as a result of the pandemic that was sweeping the nation at the time. Now, uh, I say at the time, it is still currently sweeping the nation from where I'm at. But again, historical perspective in case you didn't know. So it sold really, 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 really badly. But not really through any fault of its own. It actually critiqued pretty well, and its ticket sales were good, as good as they could be, given the limitations they were under. In fact, a mere two weeks after this came out, it hit digital storefronts. And just two weeks after that, it hit Disney+. Plus. It was Now, that's a rush job. Um, I've talked about that before, but to recover it very briefly, back in the olden days, back in the olden days, the time it took from a film to go from theater to VHS was actually a pretty significant chunk of time, just because of the amount of tech and work and effort involved. So that was the gap. You know, you, a film would come out in theaters, and then they would get it onto VHS, print the VHSs, distribute them, sell them, and then you could buy the VHS copy. Um, the amount of time that took varied, obviously, based on the specific movie and the demand for it and the company pushing it out. In some cases, they never even came out on VHS. But over time, the time it actually took, the practical, functional time it took, shrank more and more and more and more until it got to the point where they could release it the next week if they wanted to. This then carried over into the digital age when digital distribution started being a thing. This was also true with DVDs and Blu-rays, by the way. It's the same concept, really. But the catch is, most uh, film companies will do the obvious thing. They will release in the theaters, and then they'll play kind of a guessing game. They get, they get like a vague idea of how well it's doing in its opening weekend and say, okay, that sounds like that's going to be a three-month film, right? Or that's going to be a six-month film. And that's how long they give it to finish its theatrical run, then they release it on home, home video, right? Two weeks... <laughs> It speaks to something because it was ready to go. Like I said, nowadays with the tech we've got now, you could pretty much release a film entirely digitally the moment it's ready to hit the theaters. Actually, that's already happened as of the moment of me recording this. Um, 
But, you know, they still want to have those theatrical runs. But, well, it's hard to do that when the theaters are closed, and here we are. Whether this film ended up making money long-term or not is actually kind of a debatable thing and would get into some interesting accounting. So all I'm going to say right now is this, this film was smashed in the face with that, like many other films were. Now, believe it or not, I don't actually have much else to say about the behind-the-scenes of this film. Um, Dan Scanlon was brought back. He was the director of Monsters University. And uh, originally there was a major focus of a villain who was trying to prevent them from getting the Phoenix Gem. And this was about when they realized, you know, a lot of our really good Pixar films just don't have villains at all. Why don't we just keep doing that? So they decided to just have no villain, eject him from the plot entirely. They had a lot more concepts in the deleted scenes. You can see a whole bunch of those. But ultimately, not much to say there. So, uh, oh, just to get this out of the way, yes, I've seen Weekend at Bernie's. Yes, there is a portion of this film that is a riff on Weekend at Bernie's. Shrug, I, I just wanted to comment on it because I really don't have much else to say about it other than one thing. Um, so, unnecessary narration at the beginning of the film, which is literally repeated later when they read the letter. Pacing issues. One of the most frustrating things for me personally is when I don't like something and I have trouble f putting a finger on why. And I'm looking at the pacing of the first scenes and it's like, it's, it's everyday life. It's slice of life. I eat those kind of stories up. I love slice of life stories. I would, I, I talked about this in some of the previous Pixar films. I would love a story that's just about an everyday life within a world where there's all these fantastical creatures and literal magic. Oh, but also it's modern day society. Done! You know, I, I commented on the same thing back during Good Dinosaur. But it just wasn't nailing for me. And I, I was, I'm was i just sitting here staring at the screen, thinking and processing. And, I, and it wasn't until... Oh, God, I didn't even write down his name. Did I? The Elder Brother. Did I write down his name somewhere? Stanley, I think. It didn't stick with me. Names didn't. For once, I don't actually care because I don't have that much respect for this film. Oh, I suppose I just gave away my opinion, didn't I? Um, but uh, The Older Brother... It's Barley. There it is. I wrote it down. It did write it down. It's Barley. Barley comes st stumbling into the screen, and I was just like, oh, that's why I don't like it. Because this isn't a slice of life. This is a ha 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 ha, isn't this funny kind of a thing. The same exact problem that Cars 2 had. Oh, look at how embarrassing he is. Isn't that funny? And it hits... Now, it isn't as bad as Cars 2 by a wide margin. But it is the same problem. It's the same joke, and they just hammer it in for just about every little bit for the intro. There are tiny moments of non-joke, and otherwise that's all it is. Okay. So, that sucks. Then we see a scene where Ian, hey, I remember his name, sits down and talks to the dad he never knew via the recorder, via the, the stereo. That's actually a pretty good scene. It's a nice little tidbit and a nice little bit of escapism, and you could see why he would relate to a recording. It's interesting because in older times, people wouldn't even have this kind of an option. Nowadays, I mean, if I died right now, my niece would still be able to see me and hear me for the next umpteen years because I have videos all over the place on YouTube and locally saved and recorded. In fact, I've recorded a few just for her. That's just the value of the technology, right? That's something that wasn't available before. And so we have that kind of availability, and it's just kind of an interesting little concept to think about. Um, <clears throat> so that's cool. So, hold up, hold up. The dad researched magic. 
apparently could work with the magic, and successfully managed a temporary red spell, which is still very impressive, which uses one of the rarest gems in the world, apparently, even though there's two of them nearby, and in so doing, didn't tell his wife? <laughs> or anybody, apparently. Okay, I'm just going to go with it. So, uh, uh, magic went away. Let's talk about a concept, because it's mentioned at this point, you have to be born with the gift. If you're not born, then you can't do it. So this is Harry Potter, or Star Wars, or most settings that have magic. Why? There's actually a logic to this. So, I'm going to get into the weeds here just a little bit. Please forgive me. When I was designing my own setting, which I've been doing for the better part of a decade now, but, you know, it's, I've been taking my time, and I don't have a lot of spare time in my life, for obvious reasons. But when I was designing my own setting, uh, one of the things that came into view was, how do I deal with magic? Magic users, specifically, people who can cast spells. How do you deal with that? Because you have to do something... If you make magic so mundane that it's not useful, the question comes in, why do any, why does anybody bother? At that point, it becomes a niche thing and effectively doesn't really become part of the setting, which is fine, but that wasn't what I wanted to go for. If you make it incredibly useful, then you have the opposite problem. Because if it's very useful, if it can do things that other technology or other resources can't do, then it doesn't really matter how rare or hard it is because simple math is going to make that happen, more and more, for that matter. People are going to figure it out, and people are going to try. Have you ever heard of the phrase, one in a million? Yeah, there's a few billion people wandering around the planet, and that's one planet. Now expand that to a whole sector or a whole uh, region of space, and you see the problem, right? So you can't make it super useful and still make it learned without doing something to limit it. This, then, is why most settings do the you-have-to-be-born-with-it. That is their limiter. That is how they make magic something that's useful, but not too useful, but not too common, but not too rare. It's there, it's useful, but you have to be born into it. And, honestly, I hate that. <laughs> I don't have a good way to explain why. It's just always irritated me that you have to be born with the right genes to access the Force, right? That's always pissed me off, and so I didn't want to do that, so I had to come up with my own other system. But I wanted to comment on that, because that is why they do that here, almost assuredly. It's the same reason every other setting does it. It is a limiter to try and make it so that magic doesn't spiral completely out of control, and the world building makes at least a little bit of sense. Anyways, so, uh, so they res dad, but only the bottom part, weekend at Bernie's. Problem number one. This is stupid. Now, let me explain this a little bit. This would have worked if they made it the main focus. If the <laughs> I've talked before about the Pixar ideas, the Bugs Life moments. One of the most valuable things you can do with a Bugs Life moment is what if there's a person, but he's missing his top half? You know, it's the what if blank, then blank. How do they do mundane stuff. How do they do normal stuff? That is one of the core Pixar formulas and has been since all the way back in A Bug's Life, which is why I call it the Bug's Life moments, or the Bug's Life showcasing. Um, having it here, they don't really do anything with it. They do a couple times, I'll give them that, but it's it's a side bit. It doesn't add anything to the story. It's there for a couple of visual gags and to get them in trouble a couple of times, but otherwise... The dad could have just not been there at all, and all of a sudden, all of those problems are fixed. 
I honestly believe that if the spell had just flat up failed, and then they spend the whole you know journey trying to res him, get to the end and then res him, that would have worked a lot better. But that runs into problem number two: the ticking clock. Now that's the, and that that's probably your answer. Well, lore, they had to have the ticking clock. No, they didn't. The ticking clock is stupid here. It's fine in many circumstances. There's a good reason to use ticking clocks in narrative. But here, once again, it doesn't add anything. It is an arbitrary deadline to try and force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Except even that doesn't work because they would still do these things they otherwise wouldn't do because they still have sufficient motivation. Ian really wants to see his dad. Uh, Barley, was it? Yeah, Barley really wants to be supportive of his brother and also wants to see his dad. The mother's very concerned about her kids. Colt is trying to be a good, you know, father. Uh, I guess that would be stepfather. And is also trying to take care of them and take care of the mother. All of the motivations remain exactly the same if you just eject the timer entirely. They might be saying, well, then how's how does the big climax work? If they can just res him without the deadline of the one day, what's the problem? Well, the answer is obvious. Make the res only last a few minutes. This will res you. It requires this rare ingredient, which is over there. So you have to go on this journey to get it. They successfully get it. They come back. They res him. He gets a few minutes with his son. Bam. Considering how difficult resurrection magic usually is in most settings... This actually makes perfect sense. It's even implied that he actually invented this spell from his deathbed, so it would make even further sense that it is an incomplete res spell. Sorry, res stands for resurrection. If I didn't say that out loud, I apologize. Just using D&D lingo here. Um, so, all, so those two issues both diminish the film substantially for me. But let's move on. So they rush off and don't tell the mother and break their phone on the way. Now that's actually interesting. That is a very common thing. Back in the day, if you pay attention to storytelling, especially in films, one of the most common uh, narrative conceits that has to happen is the heroes have to be out of contact with the rest of the world. Either they're stuck on a space station or they're out in the woods or whatever, right? That's necessary for a lot of elements of drama, because if they can just call in and get help, then whatever, right? There's so many issues that can just be solved by a simple phone call. Now, this was a this was a normal thing for many, many years, until the cell phone was invented, and then got common, and then got very common, to the point where there are more people who own phones than own cars nowadays. And I'm talking smartphones, too. So... Filmmakers and and, uh, storytellers in general, this is also applied to video games, by the way, have an interesting habit of setting stories in a time when cell phones don't exist to just bypass this issue. In some cases, they'll try to invent some kind of excuse to make sure the cell phone is not part of the equation, which leads us to this film and the broken phone, thus removing that from the equation, and now we can sufficiently have our heroes not in contact with the rest of society and do the standard tropes. Cool. I'm going to go ahead and admit, um, I actually like Cory, the manticore. <laughs> She's probably one of the better characters in the film. Um, there's a map on the wall, of course. And this, this whole scene is very because plot. Okay, I can't let you have the map because then that's a, it's a legal liability for me. After all, it's not like anybody in the entire world could walk in here and look at the map and take a picture of it and then go off on a quest and then sue me for it because I just have it hanging up on the wall. Never mind the fact that it's on the back of the kid's mat. None of this makes sense, but whatever. 
Meanwhile, Barley insists on going on the bad path, and I get why, and I'll talk about it in a minute, but let's let's just move on. So then they do the disguise with the cops. Credit where credit is due, I like Spectre here. No, really. It is so rare to see a cop, a straight-up police officer, who is empathetic and sympathetic, you know, she's a nice person, and has a brain, figures out what's going on, and decides to call in to Colt. That's damned rare, so I'll, I'll give you that one, film. It's a nice change of pace. Um, so then we have the protagonist's fight, you know, towards the second act. Very common thing. Um, this is a good time, as any, to mention that the mother, whose name I didn't write down, her story is more interesting than the main plot of this film. Think about this for a moment. She comes home after finding out that there might be a chance to see her dead husband again. She's moved on, of course. It is it is well clearly stated that she's moved on. She has been fighting with what is what can be easily implied to be her identity and herself, in that she is currently dating a new you know, dating a new guy who, you know, they're still working on it. But there is some clear sparks there. So he's she's she's moving on. And she's trying to make something of herself. You know, she is a mighty warrior and she's doing the exercises and getting herself in shape and all that fun stuff. So you could see how she's in the middle of a reimagining herself kind of a story. Then she finds out about you know this kick from the past, which is just shock to the system, and then her kids go missing. She rushes after them, manages to successfully steal the Manticore from the cops, and then manages to get back the sword of, of Cursed Doom, I forget what the sword's called, uh, from the from the lizard lady. Although, in fairness, Cory got the sword back more than she did. Then she... And this whole time... I'm, I'm not going to go through all the steps, but each... You, you see how her story... I don't know, maybe maybe it is just me. Please, please comment if you if you agree or disagree or whatever, because I really feel like her story is more interesting than the kids. You'll notice I've barely talked about theirs yet. There's a reason for that. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, after securing the sword, she then fights a cursed dragon in order to save her kids. Anyways. <clears throat> so, I don't want to nitpick this film too much. It's not really my job. But, um... So they get up to the, the bottomless chasm. we got to get across the chasm. But then they get across the chasm. And then the other side of the chasm is not only other cops that are called in by Colt, but a paved road and a farmland. And what I'm trying to say is that implies that there's, that that's established terrain. You know, that's, that's developed terrain. So there's probably another way around the bottomless. I know, I know, I know. Journey, not destination. Journey, not destination. Which, Let's go ahead and get into it. I want to talk about Pokemon. Gotta catch a few. You ever heard of a game called Pokemon Conquest? I think it's actually sitting right over there. I'm not sure. Uh, if it's No, no, it's right there. It's right there. It's a DS game. And it sucks. I thought it was so boring. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Pokemon Conquest is a Pokemon game that is a grid-based, turn-based, uh, tactical RPG, which is set during the Sengoku Jidai, which is one of my favorite periods in history ever, and is involving Pokemon. It's a Pokemon take on that period of history, done as a tactical RPG. Everything about that sounds like, yes! When I first heard about it, I couldn't buy it quickly enough. I actually had to pay extra because... At, by the time I heard about it, you know, it's, you know how DS games are, right? You try to buy Pokemon Black and White right now, it's like 80 bucks. But 
you know, I, I, I dropped the money down, grabbed the game, and played it for a few days, and then put it down and haven't been back. I got about halfway through it. I was so bored. I use that as my er example of something that works on paper, but not in actuality. Because on paper, that should be completely my bag. That is like five separate things that I love smashed together. I mean, to use food as an analogy, which is one of my favorite analogies to use, it's not that hard to envision how that could be screwed up, right? You take um, sauerkraut, uh, vanilla cake ice cream, and... Oh, I don't know, some sushi, some mango tuna sushi, and then we go ahead and throw in some ribeye and, I don't know, a mango. And just throw it into a smoothie. That's that's not going to be good, right? How you combine matters. But what's so frustrating to me, and I hinted at this earlier, is it's there, there's very rare circumstances where I run into something that should be something I like and I don't, and I have trouble identifying why. Let me out for a second. This film is all about two central themes. Number one, finding the magic within you and, and finding your own enjoyment and happiness and joy in life, right? The, the manicor enjoying her days again and, and revitalizing the restaurant or the pixies who go back to loving to fly or even Colt who goes out there and he's like, yeah, I'm going to get a good ride in and, these are just a few examples. This is something that happens as a regular beat throughout the entire film. As all these people, it's not like they changed. They're still themselves, but they found that spark within, and there they are. So that sounds awesome. The second central theme is the very idea of the, the, the modern tech, the modern magic thing. You know, the mundane and the magical being mixed in harmony and existing and coexisting without each other. It's something I theorized would be a story that would work in Good Dinosaur. Now, we add to that the fact that this is a journey story, where the journey is what matters, not the destination, which is a very common thread, as they're going through all these unnecessary steps on this path because the whole point is the journey, as, as we see by the end of the film. I actually theorized that this very idea would work in Good Dinosaur. Not just the modern tech thing, but the journey idea, cross-countrying cross as he's trying to get his way back home. None of this works for me. Why? Now, I'm going to feel free to pause and answer here, because I do posit the question to you. Why do you think? In fact, for that matter, did it work for you? If it did not work for you, why? If it did work for you, why? I'm very curious and legitimately interested in people's responses here. I actually like this film less than when I saw it in the theaters, because analysis mode has really shown me all of the flaws as I'm going through it. But figuring out what those flaws are has been so difficult for me. So, real talk. I take a nap in the middle of the day, because I work 12-hour shifts, and so... I was going, I, I just finished, and what I like to do, especially with the longer movies, is I pause the movie at a certain point, and I go lay down, and then I get up, and I restart the movie, and then I can record fresh. But as I laid down, my mind kept processing. It couldn't help it. It was just, chong, chong, chong. what the heck is wrong with me? And that was the way my thought was going. What is wrong with me? Why don't I enjoy this film? It's so hard to pin it down until it sort of just kind of clicked with me. The first character moment in this film happens at the one hour and ten minute mark. No, I'm serious. It's the moment where Barley admits to the fact that he never got to say goodbye to his dad, that he was so scared to walk in on his dying, desiccated-looking father that he couldn't face that, and as a result, he never said goodbye. 
There's an old saying, funerals are for the living, not the dead. And one of the biggest reasons why, other than safety and dealing with the corpse, which is a huge aspect of human society, by the way, is the fact that we, we need that closure. We need that door to be closed and so we can move on and deal with it. As long as that door is just open, it's just over there. And every now and again, you just look over like, well, what's going on with that? Did I ever... And it just bugs you. He never got that closure. That's a good moment. It happens over two-thirds of the way through the film. That really helped bring this into focus. Because if we look at the surface level, all the pieces are there. So maybe the pieces don't connect together well. Well, then I started thinking about that. So let's go down another layer. But as we went down another layer, the pieces connect reasonably well. There are connecting tissues of threads throughout the journey scenes and throughout the scenes of the mother, the two stories that are going side by side as the two groups are going throughout their respective journeys and learning and rediscovering who and what they are, magic inside, journeys what matters, etc. So no, that's not it. So we got to go another layer down, inceptioning at this point, because at layer three, we see the exact specifics not just the the broad concepts or the specific concepts, but the specific implementation of the specific concepts. And this is where it breaks down. Remember how I mentioned earlier that there wasn't it wasn't a slice of life. It was a cartoon. It was because of those specific implementations of the presentation. While there were snippets of stuff there, like the fact that his science pals actually did recognize him and were totally cool with hanging out with him, even despite how awkward and embarrassing he was, that whole scene was being portrayed as a, oh, ho, 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 look at this guy, he's embarrassing the heck out of me. You know, it was the Mater joke all over again. And um, that really helped bring so much of this film into focus. Ian and, and Barley are not characters. That's the core problem. They are jokes. They are cartoons. They exaggerate and react in wacky and zany ways off of each other. Now, that can work, but it means that all of the film is relying upon that same humorous tint. Which brings us down to four, I think? I wrote this down. Um, nope, three. Sorry. This brings us down to, well, no, it is four. It is four core points that can make this kind of a story work in specific implementation. Point one, characters. There are none. Moving on. Point two, okay, well, how about uh, animation? Believe it or not, not a lot of really impressive animation in this one. Oh, don't mistake me. It's your Pixar usual. And yes, the, the, uh, the good dinosaur effect, or excuse me, good dinosaur syndrome is absolutely on display here. It really came in during the sunset scene where this very cartoony-looking elf sits down on what looks like an actual cliff looking out at the actual ocean. Not as bad as some of the previous films, but it was still there. But the point with the animation thing is a lot of Pixar films can sit on the strength of their animation. Finding Dory is a good example of that, and so is Monsters University. Both of those knew how to make interesting visual presentation of just ideas. It, not just not jokes, not slapstick, just presentation of ideas that were cool to animate. This film does not do that. So it doesn't have the animation going for it. It doesn't have the characters going for it. Well, what's point three is I double-check my notes to make sure I don't screw this up. Oh, that's right. The jokes. Now, humor is subjective. Maybe the jokes land for you. And if they do, that's awesome, because you probably enjoy this movie a lot more than I did. If it's not obvious, the jokes did not land for me. In a rare occasion for one of these films, I didn't laugh... Once. The whole film. 
And that made me kind of sad to realize that not a single joke landed for me. I'm pretty sure I laughed during Cars 3. I did, I did. There was the, there was the little sign joke. I actually laughed during Cars 3. I never laughed during this film. Okay. That brings us to 4. Fourth thing. What is the final thing that can salvage this? Chemistry. Chemistry between actors can help salvage a lot. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Toy Story, the, the original, succeeded so well is because the chemistry between Tom Hanks and the other guy. Oh, my God. Um, wow, the guy who plays, but Tim Allen, there we go. The, the chemistry between Tom Hanks and Tim Allen really helped carry a lot of that film. And that's true with a lot of works, both in television and in film and in video games, actually. Chemistry between actors really can help gel and smooth over a lot of issues. It's one of the reasons I like Voyager so much. No chemistry. <laughs> Nada. The two of them aren't characters, which is related to this, and thus all they can do is wacky off of each other. And they don't wacky in an interesting way off of each other. So instead it's just two, two cartoons going, yeah! a little bit too much and pretending that that's funny i'm reminded of the minions movies actually and i don't mean that as a positive thing no offense to despicable me that was a good film but minions of all the films i've covered so far this is by far the one that feels the most built for kids by a huge margin even more than some of the cars films which which kind of leaned in that direction as well this does not have much for an adult to latch onto, in my opinion. In my opinion. I'm, I'm just waiting for all the comments to tell me how wrong I am. And that's fine. I do want to hear your, your differing opinions, obviously. But this then leads to this is a little asterisk in all of this. So they go through the whole thing. They use the fighter's approach to traps, like you do. And uh, they go through actually a pretty cool trap where you have to stand on a button while being drowned. That's actually kind of neat. Um... And then they get to the end, and they fight the dragon, and it's it's dumb. And the mother's cool. I do like her. And then they have the the moment... I'm actually skipping ahead a little bit so, too much, because what happens is Ian goes and sits on the cliff that looks entirely too realistic, and looks at his list. This is the one redeeming trait of the film. And I will admit, this was a Pixar Tears moment for me. I did actually cry at this. I will give you that film. Because... For all of the ugh of the entire rest of the film, there were at least the moments between the characters, which were all clearly planned to be items from that list, and thus his realization that he's had this, this surrogate father this entire time, that he has already had what he's always wanted in, in, in the relationship he's always wanted with his father in the relationship he has with his brother. That's a good moment. It's a powerful moment. And it actually got tears from me. I will absolutely give you that one. It feels immensely unearned, and it feels like it comes out of absolutely nowhere. Sound familiar? Because I've said that before about Pixar films. They win. Father's rezzed. They have their, their denouement. Everyone feels so much better because they found the magic inside them. The end. What, uh, what do you think about this one? I'm actually quite curious, because I, this is one of those films that I can't give a broad, sweeping statement on why it failed, right? I mean, I can tell you why it failed financially. That's easy. But a lot of films and a lot of games and a lot of shows, I can just say, well, it failed because of such and such. And I can describe it in one sentence. 
It would be difficult for me to describe why this film failed so hard for me in one sentence. I, I don't even know. Check the timer there. It looks like I talked for about five or six minutes just about all of the different ways in which I felt like the film failed. Because it was that difficult to get across the specifics of why. Because it was down to three layers down from surface level. And I guess that's fiction in a nutshell, isn't it? And that is indeed the very reason why I do things the way I do. I don't want to just say it sucks or it's good. I want to kind of get into the why. I hope you've enjoyed my why. Uh, next up, last up, Soul. I've never seen this. A little nervous. But I am very curious to see how well that one's going to hold up. I haven't heard anything about it. So I'm, I'm going to walk. I'm, I'm walking in the most blind I have into a Pixar film for quite a while. So this should be interesting. I'll see you next time.